This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. The new school year is about to start and students, teachers and parents are facing many of the same uncertainties they were last August. Vaccines are now widely available, but coronavirus has come roaring back driven by the highly infectious Delta variant. The polarised politics around masks is adding to the tension. Last week, Governor Ron DeSantis signed an executive order allowing parents to ignore mask mandates and threatening to withhold funding from schools that defy that order. Psychologist Kimberly Rank says it's important to recognise the stresses that fear and uncertainty over the pandemic and the return to in-person classes can cause, and for families to talk about strategies for tackling that uncertainty. Well, Kimberly Rank, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Central Florida, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pretty challenging sort of year and a half, and we're now at the point of you know, returning to classes in person. Just thinking about what that last year and a half has been like, how, how are you feeling about it? Well, I am feeling the transition that all of our families have been through. I know everybody has really struggled to make sense of how things have been going. And I think watching families transition into the pandemic and now trying to transition out of the pandemic although with some new uncertainty as of late, I think it's been really difficult for our families. Do you see this affecting certain groups of students more than others, or do you think it just presents different challenges depending on whether we're talking about uh, you know, elementary or, uh, or pre-K students or, or um, you know, uh, university and college students? Well, I think there are some similarities across all of our different age groups, but there are also things that are unique to each developmental period. Um, certainly one of the things that has been on my mind quite a lot are the changes in psychological symptoms that I've noticed as children and adolescents have tried to adjust to the stressors of living in the way that we have and now thinking about going back to school and there being uncertainty again about what's going to happen with this new variant of the coronavirus and what that's going to mean for what education is going to look like. You know, that is an interesting thing that parents are starting to grapple with right about now as they're making decisions about this next school year. So what are you seeing? Like, what is different in terms of the children you see and some of the symptoms they may present? Well, I'm seeing a lot more anxiety. I'm seeing a lot more depressive symptoms, a lot more uncertainty about the world in general. You know, strangely enough, I'm feeling like the start of this school year is a little reminiscent of last school year where there were lots of questions about how schools were going to try to mitigate some of the impact of COVID-19. Parents are having questions about masking again because there's some uncertainty about whether or not masks should be required. I mean, the CDC came out previously and said, we don't need masks if we're vaccinated. The American Academy of Pediatrics is saying that all children should be wearing masks in school. So again, parents are having to face some pretty difficult questions and not clear answers from folks in administration who are going to make the call to say it should be one way or another. Do you think sometimes just having a clear answer, whether or not it's the absolute right answer, is more important than going into it with some uncertainty? Well, I think having a clear answer is helpful because at least it provides some direction. You know, I'm wondering about masks. I know I have older kids in my family, so 
I was able to get my 13-year-old my vaccinated, for example. But for families who have younger children, there's lots of questions about what that's going to mean for the younger kids who are not vaccinated. And with schools coming out with mixed messaging about whether or not masks are going to be required, you know, I foresee there being many discussions in families, many mom's rules versus the school rules or dad's rules versus the school rules, lots of peer pressure around whether or not you wear your mask, when you wear the mask. I think that's more than families should have to deal with, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. Is it difficult for parents to pick up on some of the stresses that their kids might be feeling because those parents are under so much stress themselves as well? Well, I, I think they're understanding that their kids are under some kind of stress. And I know I'm getting significantly more calls than I was about those kinds of issues. But I think when it comes to coping, that's where we're seeing challenges because parents are also dealing with similar things in their day-to-day -day life with regard to going back to work, how is that going to work, making the transition from working from home to going back to the office, even things like planning travel. I mean, we kind of took for granted our travel schedule before we were virusing. And now that everybody's going back to planning travel, people are arriving late places. You know, I've heard from several families, oh, we forgot how long it took to get here. We didn't know about traffic. You know, so those things we're having to account for again when we hadn't been doing that for quite some time at this point. Many of the stories about the health of kids throughout the pandemic hasn't just been, you know, what the questions about the the virus and what that does, but it's also been about the psychological impact of having to stay home, not having that social interaction with classmates and friends that people had before the pandemic. What's your kind of analysis of that at this point about like what what do you think the impact of that has been or is it a bit too hard to say you know what last year has done for kids in the long term well i don't know that we're going to know the long-term impact of that for quite some time i can say in the short term however kids have been dealing with a lot of social isolation feelings lots of loneliness um you know, and we had gotten to a point where we were kind of doing everything online or not doing things we used to be doing. And I think as kids transition back into school and everybody is going to be in seat because some of the homeschooling or virtual options may be more limited this cycle, um, teachers are really going to have to think about those social and emotional pieces that kids may have missed out on last year because they were online or they were doing things differently and not having direct social interaction with peers. So there may be a need to have some better or more facilitation of those social interactions of those peer relationships in the school environment so that everybody can settle in to, to renegotiating how those social interactions are supposed to go. Do you think psychologists like yourself are going to be extra busy then in the next couple of months with the school year starting off? I think that has already started. You know, I'm getting numerous calls about I'm worried about the adjustment back to school. I'm worried about how this is going to go. I'm seeing a lot more anxiety, uncertainty about what this is going to be like, you know, going back in person to things that we used to do, but seeming unfamiliar at this time. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Kimberly Rink, Associate Professor of Psychology 
at the University of Central Florida. We're talking about the return to school and what that means for kids and parents and teachers as well. I wonder then, do you feel like parents and children, have they had time to develop a set of strategies to to cope with what might be around the corner in terms of some of these adjustments you've been talking about, whether it's getting back into a class routine, renegotiating some of those um, interpersonal relationships that got a bit put on hold, uh, or face-to-face relationships at least. Um, are they going into it with the, the tools they need to to adjust smoothly? Well, I, I would hope that people have started those discussions at this point. If parents have not started those discussions at this point, now is the time and starting to come up with a plan, starting to come up with a proposed routine of how things are going to go, you know, revisiting what school is going to be like going back for the fall. Like now is the time to start that planning process and to have those discussions with your kids. You know, I'm actually glad that you mentioned teachers as well, because I think we really need to look to our teachers as being heroes in all of this. I mean, throughout this transition into the pandemic and now out of the pandemic, well, as much as we can be, um, you know, I think, yeah, we're still kind of in it and there's new uncertainties, um, but our teachers have really been called upon to do so many things and I don't think everybody has appreciated the challenges of what that has involved. And I, you know, I'm thinking of our childcare providers who have to be in person with our littles, um, who are dealing with, you know, young children not being able to wear masks, but them having to be masked themselves, thinking about social and emotional learning in the context of wearing a mask and having some of those facial features covered. But I'm also thinking about our school-age teachers, too, who were called upon to teach in a hybrid format where they had students online and in-seat in their classrooms and them feeling like they are teaching two different classes, essentially, because the venues are so different and having to do all of that to keep our children steady. Like, those are some heroic efforts that sometimes go unrecognized, I think. Yeah, I wonder about that too. I mean, is enough being done to support teachers dealing with this new normal or, or does that need a, a, another look? Whether we're talking about early childhood education, childcare providers, um, through to all the way through to college professors, like what needs to happen to make sure they're supported as they as we go into this new school year? Yeah, I think there does need to be another look. There needs to be much more support for our teachers of all ages. You know, I followed most closely what was going on with our child cares and our preschools. And I think everybody who is in that profession is struggling. I mean, they really should have been recognized as first-line responders. And I don't think that everybody considered them in that fashion. But the fact that they were having to come into work, even when everyone else was able to stay home and be quarantined. And truth be told, if we didn't have child care and preschool, parents of young children would not be able to work because, you know, those professionals are the ones who are taking care of some of our most important citizens while parents are working. And I think people forget about that. But, you know, I think supports across all age teachers is just required. They are doing some of the most important work in our society and for them to not receive the supports that they needed to handle things like hybrid teaching, um, you know, that's just not okay. 
What are some of the things then you might recommend, whether it's to parents getting their kids back to school or whether it's for teachers themselves or, or students that you that you might might talk to and who are struggling a little bit with, with what's ahead? I think one of the first things is we have to give each other and ourselves grace. I mean, this has been an adjustment for everybody as we've learned to adapt to this new environment and these new circumstances and, you know, being patient. Everybody is doing the best that they can, and a lot of folks are struggling, and we don't always know who is having the greatest struggle. And so for us to just have that patience is important. I think as it comes around working on behalf of our children, I think open communication about what's happening. Um, You know, many families have struggled through this with parents losing jobs, not having access to income that they would if we had not been on quarantine or at home. Um, So we don't know what every family has faced. And I think children have kind of gone through that experience. And now they're called upon to kind of transition back into school while everyone is working through what we're doing. And teachers may not be aware of all of the circumstances at home that families have been dealing with. You know, and I I think that open communication about what has been happening, why a child may be struggling, why homeworks may not be completed to the best of their ability. Um, You know, I think another part of this, too, is us thinking about what the children are going to need as they transition back into the school year. I think the online venue had been a difficult learning environment for many of our students, and I would bet that many of our students did not get the same experience in the online venue as they might have as if they were in seat last year. And so there may be a need to do some review, to do some catch-up. Um, to make sure that everybody is on par for whatever it is this next grade is going to pose to them and for there to be some understanding about that because I do think the online venue was hard for many of our kids. Dr. Kimberly Rink, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Central Florida, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. Still to come, a conversation about school safety and the role of school resource officers intersections back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. With the new school year about to start, we're going to take a closer look at school safety and the role of school resource officers, or SROs. Former Coral Springs Police Chief Tony Pastizzi was days from retiring when a shooter opened fire at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland in 2018. His department was one of the agencies that responded to the shooting. Pastizzi now teaches police departments about active shooter response. He spoke at the National Association of School Resource Officers annual conference in Orlando last month. Pastizzi began the conversation by explaining about how his experience shaped what he does now. Is it your worst nightmare as a police chief um, responding to a school shooting? It's a nightmare, 100% nightmare. But I felt that me and my team were prepared for that nightmare. So um, I remember going and not thinking, uh, you know, being nervous or anything else. It was, okay, we got to get there. Uh, we need to, to find this guy. We need to take him out. We need to make sure that uh, he can't kill anybody else. So we, I would say it's more robotic as far as our approach was we knew what we had to do. Uh, decisions are made, training. I always tell agencies you need to train up for this or else you fail. You need to know and be ready and have that muscle memory. If you've never trained it, you're not going to be able to, to do it. So 
So yes, it was a, a tragedy. It was a nightmare. Um, but I was glad that I was able to help as much as I could. And that I was there uh, with my team to, to try and save lives. What do you think Parkland did to, I guess, change the way um, police departments or law enforcement agencies respond to, to uh, shootings? Like what, what was the kind of key thing that, that you think changed or, or, or has kind of changed the way they trained for it at least? Well, you know, so I go back to 1999 when Columbine happened, and that was a paradigm shift in law enforcement, uh, how we're, we're supposed to respond and everything else. And back then, you waited for SWAT. You waited for uh, the heroes to get there. Um, it was just a, a different setup, but that was a long time ago. Um, and I think what Parkland taught us was um, there was a, a school resource officer at the school. Uh, he performed maybe uh, – in a way that most people would argue uh, he could have done a better job. But the whole training involved in that is getting your officers now to understand that it can happen anywhere, at any time, any place. And you really think of the vulnerable areas, schools are one of the biggest domestic threats we have. I mean, since 2000, we've lost 250 students and teachers to gun violence in this country uh, in our schools. And that should be the place you send your kids and it should be a safe learning environment. So um, I think to answer your question, I think what we learned from Parkland is the necessity of having officers in schools. Now, yes, I will be the first one to admit things could have been done better by that SRO, but it doesn't take away from the fact that the closest backup to get there was almost three minutes. And, and this entire shooting was over. Everybody, uh, he was out of the, of the building in less than, Six, uh, six and a half minutes. Um, he was all his shots were fired in less than five. You know, so uh, if you don't have a school resource officer there protecting kids, there's going to be a lot of uh, injured people. You're approaching us from a pretty specific angle, which is um, school shootings. But when you look at some of the headlines about kids being arrested for other things, do do you sort of do a double take and say that you know that that school resource officer shouldn't be arresting that kid for something? That's something that teachers should be dealing with. Yes. Well, I, I can tell you from experience because I was very involved with the school district in Bower County. I knew the superintendent. We were in a lot of meetings together and we would have arguments over some of this stuff. But what I used to say is this, if the, what, what was happening was there was no resource officer in that school in a lot of these cases where there was a, a disparity, right? Well, if you get an officer from patrol to respond to a school, they're going to handle it the way a patrol officer would, not specially trained, not given all these extra resources and knowledge and training. Um, you tell, uh, you know, a patrolman that a teacher was pushed, that patrolman's going to say, you're going to jail, buddy. You know, where a school resource officer should look at the individual and say, okay, we know he has some behavioral issues. I have history with this kid. But the whole idea of the resource side of it is getting to know the kids and getting to know not who your troublemakers are, but who your, who your kids are that need extra time to talk to somebody or whatever else, what resources can they be given? So yes, I, I feel there's going to be a nexus there, a true nexus there as we go forward with not having that connection with officers. And then kids are not going to know we're there to help them, you know? So if we have a school or we have a situation like what we did was every time we made an arrest in the school, it was reviewed by a supervisor, not thinking that we didn't say it was going to, something was wrong with it, but we wanted to know, okay, why did you have to arrest this kid? 
because we had strong diversion programs that we'd like to do first because we don't want a schoolhouse and jail hospitality, you know? But at the end of the day, we found very little, if any, I, and I'll be honest with you, I can't remember any, that we looked back and said, officer, you shouldn't have arrested that person. It was to the point where safety of teachers, our teachers need to be protected. You know, our teachers should not be bullied or touched. To your point earlier, though, um, Chief Pistizzi, I mean, you, it's a, like a school like Marjorie Simon Douglas, that is a massive campus. That's a lot of kids to get to know. That's a pretty tall order for a resource officer, right? I mean, that, that's going to take some time to build up those relationships. Sure, sure. Now, and I know after Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, the governor, uh, rightly so, um, you know, put a state statute in that said that per thousand children in a, in a school, there was going to be an officer. So, and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas that had 3,200 students, um, that would have been three full-time officers there. Um, and you would hope that with that number, those numbers, listen, the majority of kids are good kids that are, you know, just want to go to school and learn. Okay. So the, the kids that maybe law enforcement has to focus on, or, you know, mental health professionals focus on is a very small number. And so while I, they might not know my daughter, so to speak, uh, by name, that's a good thing, right? Because they, you know, she's not an issue, but so when you look at, the number out of 3,000 kids that you probably really kind of keep an eye on, it, it's probably manageable. And But the SRO has to be engaging. The SRO has to be somebody that kids turn to. You know, what you don't hear, and I was talking about this at this training, is how many cases that we have stopped in this country of a possible school shooting that was going to happen. My department a year and a half had earlier had an officer stop a school shooting in the cafeteria. The kid was in the cafeteria, had a handgun, extra magazines, and a kill list. And a third-party kid went to the SRO and said, I heard this kid has a gun. You know what? He prevented a school shooting. There would have been a school shooting. But you don't hear that. The news media does not put that out. We don't talk about it. How many prevented? What's your message for, for school resource officers as part of that mental preparation, not just responding to something like this, but the aftermath? Because, and again, this is this is something that, you know, from conversations with police officers and other law enforcement agents and first responders, like the focus on kind of mental health and like taking care of yourself after responding a tra- to a traumatic event, that's that um, approach has changed a bit, I think, in the last five, ten years. So what do you tell people who are training to be SROs or SROs now or police officers kind of thinking about this? Like, how do you make sure that you're going to be okay with taking care of yourself after dealing with something pretty traumatic like a school shooting? Well, um, I tell them uh, three things, uh, and I, we told them this before, but we re- really reiterated it uh, a lot after. Do as you're trained. Have the mental ability to believe in yourself and your training. If you if you are trained properly, you will react properly, and you have you're the only one standing in the way of you losing some children that you're. You know, responsible for protecting. So you have to be ready, engaged every time you go to school, believing it could happen. Um, I mean, look, I did 30 years at Coral Springs, and this happened three weeks before I left. I was running up to an active killer at, at building. Uh, you know, I didn't think about my own safety. It was ingrained in me. So we, I think SROs have to realize they are the first and sometimes only line of defense, and they have to be mentally prepared for that. Take the time to train. Like this, what we're doing today, there's over a thousand people at this and they're watching what we did good and what we didn't do good. And we learn from each other 
in, in hopes that, oh, I remember Chief saying that. Wait a minute, I got, I, I got to think about this. When you talk to SROs like at this conference and and your other trainings, like, do you get the sense? Do they feel good about this? It sounds like you know, there's some pressure on SROs, right? They're they're kind of in the spotlight, maybe more so than other police officers. But do you do you feel like it's a it's a role that you still have people eager to to take on and and, and step into? Yeah, I told all of them today. Uh, you know, I'm very proud. Uh, look, there's a lot of officers that have left the field, uh, left the service because of some of the stuff going on. Uh, a lot of them have been removed from schools against their will. They would have liked to stay. Um, but I told them I'm all very proud that they continue to work. I have two sons that are, are police officers, and I actually had one son that was just involved in a shootout uh, and actually killed a murder suspect that was trying to kill him. It was They were involved in a shootout. Um, and, you know, I, I told my son, I'm proud of you because you listened to your training you were committed to your field and, and you did really well and he survived. Um, and the same thing I try to tell the SROs, yes, it, you know, you could die, but that's what you signed up for. We, we signed up to protect the public and you guys are protecting the most vulnerable of the, of the public, our young kids. Well, Tony Pastizzi, former uh, Coral Springs police chief, uh, one of the agencies that responded to the shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. All right, thank you. And can I add one thing? It's it's important that parents understand that this narrative of removing SROs are going to help uh, is is wrong. And unfortunately, we're going to lose children because of some of these people that are making these decisions. And as a parent, they're, they're, they need to make sure that their schools and their school districts are safe when they send their kids to school. You don't want to get that call. These 17 parents that lost, you know, uh, kids at, at Stoneman Douglas, 14 kids and three adults, they'll never get their family members back. And I guarantee you, they're going to push to have officers in schools because that's what's going to save their children in the long run. That was retired Coral Springs Police Chief Tony Pastizzi. He spoke at the National Association of School Resource Officers annual conference in Orlando last month. I also spoke to Michelle Gay, the co-founder of Safe and Sound Schools, a non-profit school safety advocacy and research centre, her daughter, Josephine Grace, was killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting in 2012. Gay talked about what's changed in the effort to prevent school shootings since then. So I think a lot has changed. I, I do think we have been learning over over the decades, even before I officially stepped into the space of, of school safety. Um, I, I know as a, a teacher, just during my teaching career, uh, I watched changes, positive changes happen. Um, and, and a lot of those changes, unfortunately, come from painful lessons learned, uh, lessons that are shared from other communities after they experience some kind of tragedy or crisis. But I think since our tragedy experience, uh, I've seen a great deal of progress. I think the, the national conversation has changed, has advanced quite a lot. I think um, we've certainly seen moments where there are, you know, three steps forward, two steps back, and and sometimes even more. So, um, but I think the general trajectory is, is very positive. I think there's a better understanding among most school safety leaders that there's not going to be any one solution or fix or gadget or program or even person um, who can solve school safety for your community or who can bear all of that on, on their shoulders. It really is a team sport. It's something that we have to share with school resource 
officers, with administrators, teachers, parents, students, counselors, custodians. I mean, it's it's literally all hands on deck. And I'm privileged to work in communities across the country where I see that, you know, and, and those communities that are working so collaboratively and viewing safety as, as a larger kind of ecosystem, if you will, with, with many different parts and, and, and many different domains or buckets um, or areas of concentration, those are the, the communities that really seem to be making the greatest strides. This may be an oversimplification, and, and you've been doing a lot of work in this, so forgive me if it seems like a, a, a kind of a silly question, but it seems to me that when people think about school safety and particularly thinking about how to prevent school shootings, there's kind of two approaches to it. One is the issue of gun control, and the other is the issue of student mental health, if you want to sort of broadly term it, like what kind of attention are we paying to to kids who may be troubled and, and may have issues, and, and sort of those may manifest in, in violent ways. So. Is that an oversimplification, or is that pretty much sum up the two chains of thought? So it, it, I would I would say it, it's it's correct. I think it's it's even a little bit more detailed than that picture. But I think generally speaking, you know, in the wake of our tragedy, a lot of people were having um, big conversations about gun issues, gun control, gun laws, um, and I I saw a lot of energy going in that direction and just felt that I, I had seen that, um, you know, as, as a teacher and I had, I had seen little impact, little positive impact, if any, in our, in our schools. I remember, uh, being a classroom teacher the day that, uh, the Columbine tragedy unfolded. And unfortunately numerous other tragedies would unfold, uh, during my career as an educator. And then one day as a mom. So I was really looking for, something different. I was, I was looking to dive a bit deeper and certainly mental health is a very big part of how we look at school safety. For us, it's about six main buckets. We call them the big six and they comprise this larger vision of school safety. Um, mental and behavioral health is some cornerstones and then just general health and wellness. You know, are our kids coming to school healthy, fed, um, is there a pandemic happening? You know, what, what's going on in the world of health? Um, the physical environment, uh, security, and then culture and climate and community we know is another key cornerstone, as well as leadership. You know, it really takes, and that's a big part of this conference here with NASRA this year, it's about leadership. You have really strong, well-trained leaders to sustain and, and maintain you know, good, solid best practices in school safety. And then lastly, emergency and day-to-day and -day operations. So those are all um, key components that, that we view as, as making up the whole of school safety. So how do, in your view, how do, where do school resource officers fit in? Because oftentimes, like, especially if it's a really big school, it seems like just, you know, just having one school resource officer, like that's a, that's a pretty tall order, right? For that one person to be, kind of have the responsibility of safety for the entire student body and, and the teachers there too. Yeah, it's, it's actually impossible. It's physically impossible. That's why it's so important that, like I said, this is a team sport. And when you say, you know, which of those buckets would the SRO fit in? My answer is all of them. The SRO should be closely tied in with mental and behavioral health professionals in the school, should also be very well tied in with a nurse 
and the school counselor who, who addresses wellness issues, um, who also deals with culture and climate. That SRO, if you ask you know, any of the students or, or SROs that, that we work with, they're a huge part of that positive culture. And, and they are, for many students, that one trusted adult that makes the difference for them. And then, of course, it's pretty obvious that we would want um, that law enforcement background to, to be, you know, well utilized in that, in, in safety and security, that, that cornerstone. And of course, operations and emergency management and leadership and law. So we really want to see the SROs living in all those buckets. Um, certainly their law enforcement background is going to make them particularly expert in that physical safety and security area. Um, but in all areas, um, the SROs that we're privileged to work with, with NASRO and across the country, and they live in all those buckets. They work with all of those those different stakeholders um, for the for the greater good of, of the entire school community. You know, school shootings just seem to happen all too frequently, right? Like every every time there is one, you sort of think, well, this surely this is this is the end of it, right? Like wh- where do we where do we go from here? So how do you think through those things when there's a, a new headline about a, a school shooting or, or something similar? Yeah, I think sadly. Um when an, when another shooting crisis occurs in a school um it's 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 different to me of course it it does bring me back to my own personal experiences but as you start to look at the root causes behind you know each of these tragedies it, you realize that they are they are all different you know there are different circumstances in in our circumstance there was profound mental illness, um, you know, combined with access to firearms, combined with a broken family structure, uh, you know, and, and many, many other factors. So they're not all exactly the same. Um, and it, it really is important to to try to understand the specific circumstances of, of each of these, you know, crises and what led that individual or individuals, you know, along the path to violence if we, if we hope to prevent things like that in the future. But I think um, while we learn a lot from looking back, being proactive, you know, really making sure that we are intervening when a kid is crying out for help, uh, making sure that there are programs and there are, you know, many different trusted, um, healthy adult and peer relationships for our students, for their families, really attending to what it takes to support individuals. Uh, that's what builds a healthy and safe school community. How long do you think you're going to be doing this work for? Is this, do you kind of have like a, at some point um, my, my work is going to be done or does this sort of feel like a, a fairly long-term commitment? It's a, it's a fairly long-term commitment. It's as long as I can stand up and, and do it and be useful, really. Um, that's To me, that's the timeline. As long as what um, I have to share, as what my organization has to contribute, uh, the programs, the resources, the the experts that that we work with. As long as we are useful and positive influences on the safety of our students and teachers and school communities across the country, we're going to keep doing this. Well, Michelle Gay, thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, interesting speaking to you, and I appreciate the work you're doing. Thanks so much for your time. Michelle Gay is the co-founder of Safe and Sound Schools. It's a non-profit school safety advocacy and research centre. Her daughter, Josephine Grace, was killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting in 2012. I spoke to her last month. 
Still to come, we're heading into the peak of hurricane season, a conversation about the impact of storms on the natural environment and what that environment can teach us about resilience. That's when Intersection returns in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Without hurricanes, how different would our coastal landscape and the ecosystem around it look? Kelly Kibler, an Associate Professor of Water Resources Engineering at UCF, joins Intersection to discuss the role of hurricanes on shaping the environment, including the way they affect water systems and what natural systems like mangrove swamps can teach us about resilience. Professor Kibler, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I wonder if we could do a little bit of a thought experiment. How would Florida look, given the, the impact they have on the environment? How, how do you think Florida would look if there weren't any hurricanes to contend with? Yeah, you know, I've thought about that before, and I can tell you it would look really different. It would be really hard to predict how it would look uh, because hurricanes are that influential. So the, the, the ecosystem, especially like the plants and the animals that can inhabit a particular place are really influenced by the environmental conditions of that place. And if you take away something as important as a hurricane, it would be difficult to, to even predict what our landscape would look like, what the vegetation would look like, what the animals or what our diversity would look like. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the impacts that you see and the, the things that you're particularly interested in, in researching. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a water resources engineer and my research area is focused on ecohydraulics, which is just a fancy way of saying how water moves through natural aquatic ecosystems. Um, so this is an interdisciplinary study that's focused at the intersection of engineering and ecology, really based on kind of a fundamental engineering discipline called fluid mechanics. Um, so in fluid mechanics, you know, we're often looking at the way that water or air interacts with the solids around it. And in ecohydraulics, we're really specifically concerned with when the fluid is water and the solids around the water are really complex. So an example of this would be like if water was flowing through vegetation, the water would be touching and interacting with the stems and the leaves of the vegetation and also with the dirt that the vegetation is in. And, you know, so sometimes the, the water, if it's moving fast enough, it's going to pick up some of that dirt, carry it somewhere else. When it slows down, it'll drop that dirt. And over time, that process of picking up the dirt and dropping it somewhere else is going to form, you know, particular landscapes uh, that look different than, you know, than if the uh, climatic condition were different. And so this research is really kind of inspired by its application to infrastructure. Um, so when I think of infrastructure, when most people think of infrastructure, they immediately think about roads and bridges. But there's also infrastructure that exists for the purpose of protecting people and property against climatic extremes. So an example of this would be like to build a dam to protect against flooding or against drought. Or when we build like a seawall or a revetment to prevent properties against storm surge and erosion. So basically, you know, when the land gets washed into the water. Um, so Florida is really blessed with natural infrastructure that performs some of these same services without us having to build it. Um, so an example of that would be like a wetland would slow down um, rainfall to allow it to sink into our aquifer and replenish our water supply. Or on the coast, systems like barrier islands and dunes, mangrove wetlands, oyster reefs, these are all natural features that can protect inland areas from storms, from flooding and erosion. And when it's not storming, these ecosystems can also 
give us really good, clean water quality and provide habitat to support our biodiversity. And so my research group is studying some aspects of these natural systems that give the materials almost like a superpower. So properties that we can't expect to get from the materials that we would use in traditional um, engineering of our built infrastructure. So an example of this would be if you were to build a seawall, that seawall would be at one elevation and one height. So as water levels change around that seawall or as the land surface changes around the seawall, the seawall stays the same height, same elevation, it can't adapt. But if we were able to integrate some of the natural features into our built infrastructure, those features could have the ability to kind of move and adapt with changing environmental conditions. And that ultimately would give our aquatic ecosystems greater resilience. Has engineering changed a little bit? Like, are you seeing some of these infrastructure projects borrowing from the environment, the natural environment, or are you seeing more of a reversion to say that what's in the natural environment works better? Let's try and preserve some of that, you know, whether it's mangrove growth or, or some of the wetlands, rather than trying to build some concrete barriers against the ocean. Well, the great thing about natural infrastructure is that it exists naturally without us having to build it or maintain it. So when we think about integrating natural infrastructure into our you know, climate adaptation systems, for instance, we could think about it in a couple of different ways. We could conserve what we already have, so that's important. We can also try to restore function to areas that you know, historically had these types of features and maybe have become degraded or no longer are there. Um, and so conservation and restoration of places that traditionally had some of these features like wetlands or like oyster reefs is a very different story from then trying to borrow the properties of these materials and integrate them into a place where you know, maybe there wasn't historically an oyster reef, but people are really interested in trying to both restore healthy oyster populations and also use some of these you know, superpowers of oyster reefs to try to protect against shoreline erosion. So it can go both ways, trying to, to keep what you already have in place, restore what was once there, or take some of these features and, and create them in a place that maybe they didn't exist historically, but could provide a benefit. So this is kind of where we get over into like ecosystem engineering or ecological engineering. Do you think, you know, based on what you've seen so far, uh, like, do you see wetlands keeping pace with it or... Do you think that the if we do see this start to see more active storm seasons, stronger storms, you know some of these superpowers may just not be super enough to keep up with the the changing climate? Yeah, it's a really good point, and honestly, the answer is going to depend on where you are. It's going to be so site specific. So if you want to talk about generalities of, of how we can think about using natural infrastructure to to protect our our coastlines, for instance, I think you have to think at scale. Um, so for instance, if you are a waterfront property owner and you wanted to protect your property from erosion and from storms by, instead of putting in a seawall, uh, planting some vegetation or trying to create an oyster reef, um, you have to really temper your expectations about what type of, of an impact you're going to get from a small scale implementation. Really what we need to be thinking about is more kind of geographic scale in you know, the east coast of Florida is a great example of this, how we've got this barrier island system, which is 
You know, that's the type of scale that's really going to be important. The hectares of oyster reefs and mangrove wetlands within that barrier island system. Irma was a big storm that affected the entire state, uh, but there have also been some very powerful storms that have affected a, a much narrower area, like Hurricane Michael, for example. Um, is, is that a, a storm that you've taken a look at to sort of see you know, what the, the long-term impacts of that have been from an aquatic engineering point of view? I haven't studied Hurricane Michael in particular. It's, it, you know, like you said, it hit such a small area of the coastline and not one that I happen to study. Um, and every storm is not created equally, of course, like, you know, tropical storms exist along this gradient of severity. And that was an absolutely devastating storm. So if you think about kind of the evolutionary history of, of a landscape and, and that that landscape has evolved with um, strong storms, then you can kind of start to understand the way that the role that storms play in forming the landscape. Um, so there are some species, so that, that storm, Michael, obviously, if, even if we're just talking about ecosystems, there was definitely some mortality of plants or organisms that happened in association with Hurricane Michael. And so you might think, oh, that's a bad thing, you know, mortality, dead plants, dead animals. Um, but evolutionarily, mortality actually sometimes gives opportunities to the species that otherwise wouldn't have opportunity. You know, So if we had nice, stable weather all of the time, um, some species would not be able to survive and, and persist. So there is a role for these really, really strong extreme events, as terrible as they are for us humans. Um, our ecosystem has evolved with them and has ways to cope with it. I think... Uh... Professor Kibler, some of the responses we're seeing to changing conditions, like, for example, in South Florida, you see pumping stations being put in, you see roads being uh, raised. Uh, these are pretty big engineering solutions, right? Um, and I, I, I'm sure there's probably some kind of middle ground you might need to strike between at some point saying it might get a bit too expensive to start putting in these expensive engineering solutions and think about other ways to, you know, mitigate the, the impacts of, of big storms. Yeah, it's, you've raised a great point. Um, so right now, our response to a lot of climatic extremes is to rebuild either in a similar way to, to the way that something was built before, or try to implement um, an engineered solution like raising the roadbed or something like that. And that certainly can work in some areas. It certainly can work for some time. Um, but there are other situations that, you know, things like uh, renourishment of barrier islands that are being washed away repeatedly or something like this, that, you know, there is the need to think long term about the strategies that we're employing and if they're temporary fixes or if they're actual adaptations. So it's, it's a great question. I wonder, too, are there some areas where you're you're sort of thinking this could be a place where if we get a storm, that's going to change the nature of the research? Or have you got some research that your team is working on now that, you know, is really dependent on basically just what happens this storm season? Yeah, I mean, that's every season for us. Uh, you know, especially it's not just the storm season, but um, also the season when water levels just tend to seasonally be the highest, you know, when the Gulf Stream slows down. Um, those are the most exciting times for us to do research. Um, if a storm comes through, we are prepared. We have some sensors that we put out that you know can collect data during storms. 
Um, but if no storms come through, we're, we're still out there. We're still, um, right now we're, we're studying the effect of sediment transport through seagrasses with the aim of trying to assist with seagrass restoration in the Indian River Lagoon, um, also the mangrove wetlands, and we're also studying oyster reef restoration. So these are the types of things that, storm or no storm, we're, we're doing this every year. And of course, the Indian River Lagoon has been, a, you know, there have been ups and downs with that as far as the health of, of that ecosystem, right? But this, this year especially, I think a lot of attention has been focused on that, to your point, because of the seagrass and the, you know, the, the uh, manatee mortality. Does that, do you feel that gives a little more urgency to the, to the work you and your team are doing? Well, I think it raises more public awareness of it. I, you know, the, the seagrass issue has been a problem in the Indian River Lagoon for, for much longer than just this year. But what we saw this year is the compounding environmental effect of many, many years of loss of seagrass, followed by a particularly bad seagrass loss year. And then now we start to see the, the manatee mortality that follows that. Um, so absolutely, it's raising public awareness, which is raising uh, kind of the urgency of management communities well, that we need to do something about it. And that gives us more, I guess, just justification for the research that we do, more um, applications, more chances to talk to people about it in a way that, that they feel it, it really impacts them. Do you have a favorite waterway in Florida? Oh, that's difficult. I love the Silver River. Um, and I love Mosquito Lagoon. Of all of the, the three systems in the Indian River Lagoon system, I have to say it's my favorite. And uh, partly because it just has amazing habitat and amazing natural infrastructure. It's perfect for studying what my group studies. Well, Kelly Kibler is Associate Professor of Water Resources Engineering at the University of Central Florida. We've been talking about the impacts of storms uh, on the natural environment. Thank you so much for your time. Professor, I appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. I really appreciate the opportunity. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from our intern, Brittany Caldwell. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Follow me on Twitter at Matthew underscore Petty. Thanks for listening.